breakfast, they say, is the most important meal of the day. So, eat dessert first. Not what you would expect to hear as a good idea, but these are sugar-free brownies. And dairy-free brownies. And gluten-free brownies. <laughs> you might be saying, well, yeah, and flavor-free brownies, too. Not so. My guest today will share her tips on making fabulous brownies you can eat even for dinner. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 180. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Gardening season is around the corner. Maybe you have a small porch for a garden or need to increase your growing space. Earth boxes, which I use and love, make gardening easy. I've used them for years, and last year my okra and tomatoes and green beans were all happy plants. Check out the varieties and accessories by visiting culinarylibertarian.com slash earthbox. My guest today is Lynn Bowman, author of Brownies for Breakfast. You know with a name like that, I simply have to speak with her. Lynn was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes more than 30 years ago and offers herself as living proof that you can cook, eat, sleep, and walk your way out of type 2 diabetes, along with a huge number of other chronic ailments. Now, you may notice Lynn's preference for a diet omits things I prefer. She says she's well, and that's the important part. I mention Jimmy Clegg, friend to the show, and me, and how his path on keto works for him. The key part of success in both cases is the lack of sugar. It might seem I am supporting a vegan diet. You might think I'm promoting a plant-based diet. I am promoting a diet of less to no sugar, and in that, she and I agree. Hello, Lynn. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hello, Dan. I am so tickled to be right here with you. And can't wait to crank her up because we've both got so much to talk about when it comes to food. We do. We were just chatting a minute ago and, and, and we like to talk and that's a good thing for a podcast. We do. We so do. I'm going to do my best Billy Crystal, which I'll warn you is bad. <laughs> but uh, for those of you of a particular age, Lynn, you look marvelous. Thank you, Doc. Fabulous. And we're going to get into why that is specifically important. But before we get into all of what we're going to talk about, which is Brownies for Breakfast, the name of your book, give us a bit of a brief bio about yourself and then mention why it's important you look marvelous. (laughs) Well, do I have to do a bio? It's so long. And, uh, you know, uh, how did you get to be writing the book? What happened? What happened was nobody ever wrote the book for me. Nobody in my whole long time of being a type two diabetic 
ever gave me all the information I needed, the important stuff in some kind of palatable form that I understood or that I could act on. So I made it my mission to do that for y'all because in fact now something like 85% of the American population has a chronic disease in some form. And, and it's almost entirely preventable. It's at least perfectly manageable. And it is in many cases reversible. And so, and you can have it in 212 pages if you want it. And I would hope that you would volunteer to do that because it's astonishing to me that 85% of us have chosen either through, in some cases, ignorance, stubbornness, whatever, have, have chosen not to be as healthy as we can be. And, and you're making that choice, not just for you, you're making that choice for your loved ones, your family, your neighbors, your friends. And you are also making the choice by choosing not to be healthy. You're, choo you're choosing financial illness as well. Uh, and, you know, that's a whole other thing, right? Don't get us started about what that means. Uh, but so I'm here sprinkling my fairy dust to the extent that I can, because I want you all to be happy and healthy. And guess what? It's not hard. Uh, you know, nature has a way of we do get run over by buses. Things do happen. But for the most part, sweetie pals, for the most part, you are choosing to be unhealthy because you're eating crap all the time and you're not moving and you're not sleeping. And those are all really basic, simple things that, uh, you know, even if we're limited, Dan, even if we only have a half an hour, an hour, we can go right down the list real quick of what you do. I can't get into all the whys and the hows and, and all of the islet cells and all of the circadian rhythms and everything. But there are some really basic things that you can do right now, starting today, you can do. And not only is it not going to cost you anything, it's going to save you money <laughs> and it's going to make you friends. It's going to do all kinds of good things for you. So that's what I want to talk about. All right. Well, friends are good. Um, I want to clarify a point that you brought up about managing our, our collectively our state of unwellness through yes. now that that condition has been created by forces that we had no control over, uh, which was, and I've covered this a couple of times on, on the show, the USDA's, my pyramid, now my plate, the, this whole proscription of poison as food fed to the kids in schools. And then they go out as adults and look for the exact same thing, which mostly is sugar and bad fat. So, right. It's sugar, salt, fat. It's not entirely. I mean, it's it's partly. It's not our fault as kids because we. What, we, what choice do kids have? They don't know these things. Um, but as adults, no, there's a problem about. And the last two years have really highlighted how research and quote unquote the experts are 
raised to an unnecessarily high level of authority when what we discovered is the experts are usually full of beans. Um, well, Dan, it's all about money, honey. Well, it, it can be, but we can we cannot listen to them. But then now the question is, if we're not going to listen to the experts who have been, <laughs> pun intended, feeding us this garbage for 40 years or longer, where the hard part is sifting through the vast amount of content that one can find on the basic Google search. And how do you, I mean, this isn't to be answered here, but the, it's a good question for anyone who's looking for dietary information. I'm going to go online and look for it, and I'm going to be inundated with stuff that I already know, but clearly that's not working. Okay, so, but there's experts, and then there's experts. And another thing I think we need to recognize is the big food role in, quote, experts. Big food has been making big money for decades selling crap. And they do that by hiring people to be, quote, experts on their behalf. So you have to go even behind the experts to understand the craveability industry. And you've probably had this on the show, too. I know this is a subject that you're familiar with. Um, it, the, all those buildings along the highway in New Jersey full of people who are engineering food, literally, so that you can't stop eating it. And for decades, we've been listening to the advertising industry promoting big food, selling us crap. So we have generations of people in this country who still think that milk is good for you because of billions of dollars being spent to sell uh, milk to us, cow's milk. And we can go, we, there's a whole long list of things and there's an interesting history. And I, I always like to suggest Michael Moss's books. He's, his recent one is called Hooked, um, which is a lot of great reporting about exactly what goes on in those buildings in New Jersey to create those foods so that you are in fact addicted and that's not a metaphorical word. You are addicted to sugar and to some other things, which we can't even pronounce. Or right? pick or grow. Right. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, experts. Uh, there are wonderful experts wandering around out there now, like me, people in the desert trying to say, and I'm not an expert. I'm a grandma, which is a different kind of thing altogether. Uh, I'm a different kind of expert. I'm the expert that wants to sit in front of you at a table with some tea and wag my finger at you and say, what are you doing to yourself? You know, that kind of thing. That's me. Um, but I'm not an MD <laughs> and I'm not a PhD, but I know one when I see one. Uh, and one of the reasons I wrote this book that I did is because I had been listening to MDs and PhDs for decades and not getting the answers. So, but the answers are out there and there are people who are putting out good information. You just have to really kind of sort through who they are. And, but the, it's not hard to tell when you get down to it because, you know, Michael Pollan, another person who I think has put out some great information into the food 
world and it's um, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. Duh. How, 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 it's not hard. There it is. Boom. And you need to move and you need to keep moving. Uh, but you don't have to do any particular set of moves or any particular timing of moves. Just move, dance, walk, right? Hike, have a good time. Um, everyone is making a lot of money now on online and offline with these very specific, the keto diet, the paleo diet, the, you know, and, and another thing that I think is hilarious is we now call it intermittent fasting. What is it? It's skipping a meal. Hello? Skipping a meal. It's a good, healthy thing to do. And when you think about it, your Paleolithic ancestors probably skipped a meal or two as well. Because they didn't so. always <laughs> have food to eat. Hey, I saw the documentary Crudes. I know how hard it was. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's not really amazing. I, I just listened last night to an hour and a half about circadian rhythm and light and how to fix your eyeballs and so on. And it, it's very, it's interesting. And I love learning those things, but what's the takeaway? The takeaway is don't stay up watching crap on TV half the night. It's doing, it's not only putting bad stuff in your brain, it's wrecking your, your, physical response to the universe because you're not getting the dark that you need when you need dark. Right. Sleep. Um, Yeah. Sleep is, sleep is critically important and and lots of young people. And I was one of them in my twenties. They, yeah, whatever, who needs it? Well, well, Dan, think about it. MDs are actually trained not to sleep. Famously, you go to med school, you don't sleep for four years, Right. And then they go out and practice. And what's the one thing they probably need to tell every single one of their patients? Get more sleep. Get more sleep, better sleep. But do they? Probably no. not. No. Um, and it's only really fairly recent meal, recently in my life that I understood that, for example, um, you really don't heal at a cellular level you cannot heal unless you are in deep sleep and haven't eaten in a while because autophagy, that fabulous uh, system in your brain to clean out cells and prepare you for the next day, it can only work when everything else is closed down, including your digestion. So it's like, oh, huh? Right? This is the thing we need to know. This is the thing we need to know early in our lives, hopefully. Don't wait till you're 75, like grandma here. You know, figure this crap out early in your life so that you can look marvelous later on, so that you can have energy uh, and creativity later on. You know, this, this idea that when we're 75, we're some sort of broken down creature no longer capable of, you know, being socially interesting or, uh, I mean, why, <laughs> why not just keep partying until you're a hundred? Uh, that's what I plan to do. Whoever said that never met Jack LaLanne. 
Jacqueline. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> Did <laughs> you whole, meet him? I didn't, but I remember in the 60s watching him on TV because my mother would do the calcetas because that's what Jack said to do. But yeah. I also realized there's an entire generation of people who were like, what movie was he in? Like, no. <laughs> and that's a go, go Google Jack. Who's this, Jack was an amazing, what a, probably a really great guy. I never met him, but he seemed like a really nice guy. I didn't meet him either, but I sure watched him on TV. When I yeah, was everyone did. Yeah. So brownies for breakfast. Yes, sir. Now, one thing I noticed is going through uh, various information about your book and then a YouTube channel you have. Um, you mentioned you mentioned milk, and so you bake dairy free. You bake obviously sugar free. Mm-hmm. You bake gluten free. Yes. So there's so there's two first questions. The first one is, as a baker, I'm saying, wow, these are the things that that give baked goods make them taste good. Is there's flavor? That's because there? you so, just got stuck on flour. And sugar and never got past it, baby. Well, how do you make your brownies? There are people who will be triggered by this word, moist. Ah, there's a whole group of people driving off the road. No, it's Um, really easy. And it would horrify you to watch me bake because I'm impatient. I want it all in a bowl. I want it in the oven. I want it done. I don't want to like blanch things and, you know, I just, I want her done. And so my brownie recipe is a one bowl wonder and it is nut butter, typically almond butter. You can do it with cashew butter and pumpkin, hello, and real cocoa and a little bit of salt and some cinnamon and eggs or egg substitute. Either one works fine. Okay. So you use eggs. Baking soda. I do. If you're strictly vegan, just make it with the egg substitute. It's fine. It works well. Um, and you can use crunchy almond butter or you can add nuts to it if you want. But and, and you mix it all up in a bowl. And then I actually use Trader Joe's sugar free. Um, bought, they're called Simply Light chocolate bars, dark chocolate for the frosting. You put a little bit of uh, soy milk or oat milk with it. You you nuke it. Hello. <laughs> you can see how I cook now. Um, you nuke it for five, 10 seconds and, and it melts together and makes the most beautiful, glossy, gorgeous frosting you've ever seen. So there's nothing in there but pumpkin and nut butter, basically, and cocoa, all great food, right? And that pumpkin if you use dark chocolate with it, the pumpkin goes behind and the chocolate comes in front and you have no idea that there's pumpkin in there, um, which, you know, it's not a problem for me. I love pumpkin, but if you don't tell anybody what's in these brownies and you, Oh, and I forgot to say it's monk fruit. I'm using either chicory root or monk oh, fruit right. as a sweetener. So if you slap, slap those little puppies down on the table with the beautiful frosting, all glossy and everything on them, and everybody has some, don't tell them till after they've eaten the brownie that they've eaten no sugar, no flour, no added oil, no dairy. It's just, it's, it's good food. 
it's a breakfast, it's a lunch, it's a dinner, it's whatever. And it's great for your 85-year-old grandma. It's great for your five-year-old kid. Everybody can eat the same stuff, which I also want for everyone. I don't want everybody eating in little silos because this one is vegan and this one is too old and this one is too picky. And so let's put it all on the table, let everybody eat together. I think that was the intention of nature. Um, So yeah, there's the brownie. And, And then there's so many other recipes in the book that are the same idea. If you like pumpkin, uh, and I do. There's a lot of pumpkin spice kind of stuff. There's a great pumpkin pie in a nut crust, which I, I don't care what kind of fabulous baker you are. Who wouldn't love a beautiful pumpkin pie in a nut crust with whipped coconut cream on top? It's fabulous. The nut crust sounds good. And my, we've discovered in the last couple of years that uh, my wife has an autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's. So uh-huh. among many other things, one of the things that we are excluding is gluten. Yeah. Now, from a professional restaurant, commercial baker, gluten's your thing, baby. This is... This is it used to be your thing, Dan, until today. Well, it's been, it's, I've been learning for the last couple of years, and now, learning to bake pastry, even regular gluten pastry, there's a there's a learning curve to that. And making croissants well, that's a skill. Flat out, there's a skill to that. Not everyone can do it. I lived in Paris. I understand oh, nice. what you're talking about. So turning this into gluten-free, where your choices of flour are, okay, you have flour or flour or flour, you have bread or cake or AP, or you have this French double lot. That's fine. You go into the gluten-free world. Now there's 40 different kinds of flour. Like, oh, my God. And So you have chickpea flour. Haven't used have, that one yet. You have oat flour. You have almond flour. Um, you have, I don't know, coconut red, flour. Red rice, white rice, millet, quinoa, mung bean, uh, arrowroot, cassava, Sorghum, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. is just what I can think of off the top of my head. That's out in the out in the pantry. I know there's more I'm missing. And then there's various mixes, mm-hmm. and not all. Of, and they all say one to one the label. <laughs> nope, big fat lie. Um, well, this so, is especially interesting for someone like you who's really a serious, serious baker. Most of the people who are hearing us, and maybe who have my book. It's a big deal just to get them in the kitchen. Just go in there and yeah. cook something for yourself. Well, and that's my blessing for my cookbook too. Just go in and do it. Just go in someplace. and do it. And so uh, my book is designed for an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, or an 85-year-old that's never cooked. Any, It's simple. And sure, so sure. I don't go into a lot of perturbations about the flowers. I mentioned two or three that work fine for me, but I just do the recipes that are kind of workarounds where they're not flour based, you know, they're not, Mm -hmm. they're not butter based. And I wanted to demonstrate that without butter and without added oil and without all of that wheat and wheat flour and gluten, you will not run out of fabulous things to eat. You, it's just a change. It's a, it's a shift. It's a change because most of us, like me, 
grew up eating. I mean, my mother baked, my grandmother baked, my aunt Frosty baked, uh, you know, and they all baked with butter and flour and Crisco. Remember Crisco? I do. Uh, yeah. And, and that, those are the s- smell memories and the taste memories that I have, but you can create new ones that I promise you, you will love. Um, and some of them actually harken back in an interesting way. One of the recipes I have in the book is lemon curd. You'll be familiar with lemon curd as a baker. That's a very traditional thing uh, that goes in lots of sweets. So you take a basic vanilla cake kind of thing or a pie crust and you throw some lemon curd in it and you can put meringue on top. And all of a sudden you've got a beautiful traditional dessert that challenges any gourmet dessert anywhere. It's got no sugar, no flour, and no butter in it. Interesting. Fabulous. Uh, Lemon curd. Well, actually, I don't know, being out here in the West, lots of folks aren't, unless they're transplants, it's been my unofficial, low information, uh, low, low survey quantity uh, observation that nobody here really is familiar with what punchkis are. So out west in Detroit and New Orleans and of course New York, there are the Polish donuts you eat on Fat Tuesday, which is coming up in less than two weeks. Mm-hmm. And a fabulous, now lemon curd isn't traditional. Traditionally, it gets a rose marmalade inside, which mm-hmm. um, the folks in, in New Jersey, they know what this is because they can go to the Polish deli and they can buy jars of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Now, it's loaded with sugar. But let me tell you what, rose marmalade is fantastic. So a nice fat punchki on Fat Tuesday. Dan, I refuse <laughs> to participate in a conversation that elevates sugar as a thing well, we should aspire to. We shouldn't aspire to it, but there's got to be a way to make a, an acceptable, we'll say keto, because keto means no sugar and generally means no grain uh, donut that can be filled like a Bismarck. Okay, well, it's in my book. Is it? Yeah. Well, good. So everyone has to go buy her book so they can make punchkis for March 1st and celebrate Punchki Day in proper Polish style. Who doesn't love a donut, basically? I have not met any such person, and I don't think I want to. No, and so one of the kind of pillars in my book is that uh, I, I show you how to make a fabulous donut in your oven, baked, not fried. And you put pink frosting on it and you put sprinkles on it, all sugar-free. And my proposition is that nobody doesn't love a pink donut with sprinkles on it. I, I, I can't argue with it. I think you're probably no. right And so that. picky kid, no problem. Here, honey, here's a pink donut with sprinkles on it. What do you think? And guess what it's made of? You already know. I, I showed my hand. It's probably pumpkin. Um, there's another <laughs> recipe in there. There's another recipe in there for more of a vanilla flavor. Uh, it's made with chickpea flour and some other things. But I, there's no reason why you have to give up some of these traditional, wonderful, gooey things from your childhood memory. I'm with you there. You can't get all of them, maybe, but you can get some of them. and They're pretty darn good. If you just change what you're using for a sweetener and change what you're using, using for a flour and um, experiment with some of these sweeteners, because a couple of them are really good now. 
And, you know, chocolate, I'm all about chocolate and chocolate is great food. You just need to kind of retool how you're putting the chocolate out there. There's a couple of brands, I don't remember them, but I've bought uh, a couple of brands of sugar-free chocolate bars, the three ounce, whatever they were. Mm. were Fantastic. It's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) When... When I was a kid back in the 70s and you'd go to the GNC and they'd had this little diabetics section and you buy the yeah. diabetic chocolate, yeah. you'd rather eat floor tile than right. eat the diabetic chocolate. It was absolutely no, terrible. Wait, and I felt we can bad. do this. We can do this. And when you take the sugar and the flour out of a lot of recipes, you're the, it's more flavor forward. You, you're not dulling down right. a lot of the flavor with sugar and flour. So um, I, I, I don't apologize for any of these recipes. I think that uh, they are worthy of everyone's uh, experimentation. And also, unlike a lot of traditional baking, where it's very chemical and you've got to get your proportions exactly right. And, you, you know, my stuff is grandma stuff. I mean, like I said, you throw it in a bowl, you stir it up, you put it in the oven. Um, if you like it gooey, do it a little more this way. If you like it a little more cakey, do it a little more this way. But it's not hard. It's, you know, it's not anything. Uh, and the reason to do it, let's get basic, is that you cannot really be healthy if you don't do it. If you're not making your food, if you're relying on restaurant food, not, no, I mean, I know, I know. But but you know the secret of making restaurant food fabulous. And that is a lot of butter, <laughs> a lot of sugar, a lot well, of other things that, that maybe aren't so wonderful. I mean, once in a while, okay. But Dan, people are driving through. They're driving through two or three problem. times a day. This isn't the same business you're in. It's a different business. And people are eating in their cars they're eating in front of the TV. They are not eating real food. They are driving through. And then when they're done with that, they're carrying around their Frappuccino mm-hmm. coffee all day or iced tea in some cases. And they're holding the sugar against their teeth and their gums all day. And the dentists are all screaming, What's, what are you people doing? You know, you're affluent. You're healthy, sort of. You, you know, you come to the dentist twice a year and now your teeth are rotting out. Well, they're rotting out because you're holding sugar against them all day with your milky, sugary thing you call coffee. It's not coffee. It's milk and sugar that somebody waved some coffee beans over. You know, I've put myself on a it could be easily defined just to avoid complicated conversation as a keto style diet. So high fat, high protein. Uh, and it's, it's, I still, I gotta tell you, I still miss, I still miss sandwiches. I still miss bread. I still miss, I mean, my, my mouth misses them. My waistline doesn't miss them at all. And I've managed to, reduce my waistline and my fat content on my body substantially. And so I'm quite pleased with this change in my body. I feel better. I look better. And those two things sort of work together to keep perpetuating wanting to look better. 
what I've discovered is that sweet things that normally would have been almost unnoticed now are like, wow, that thing is really sweet. <laughs> it's, it's both surprising and a little bit alarming at how much sweet it appears to be in just basic stuff. Like, you know, I was a kid and I was a kid in Detroit, Michigan, a stone's throw from Battle Creek. You know what every kid in Detroit ate for breakfast? Cold cereal. Why? Because you were a good Detroit citizen and you kept the company in business. Every kid in the country, Dan, was Had eating crunch, the baby. same <laughs> crappy cold cereal. Oh, man. And but, that's what we were seeing on TV every day. Yeah, because it was pretty colors. I want the, yeah. I want the rabbit. Um, the talking toucan. But I want to address what you're saying about how things taste now, because I like to tell people, and this was news to me, that after two or three weeks of quitting sugar, cold turkey, if you just absolutely quit for one example, your saliva changes, your body chemistry changes. So what tasted okay to you three weeks ago will not taste necessarily okay to you now. And things that you wouldn't have dreamt of eating three weeks ago, all of a sudden you're going, oh, arugula, chopped arugula, mm, lovely, fragrant. And maybe you never even imagined that arugula would smell so great to you and taste so great to you. That's because you're chemically changing your body, your responses. Arugula is an impressive, and I think there's varieties, but uh, there's some, and also sorrel, man, sorrel will wake your mouth up. And a thing that that I highly recommend. I talk about it in the book because people always say, okay, well, what are the top three or four things that you suggest, you know, that, that we change today? One of them, it's about number three or four is eat dark greens two or three times a day. And most people go, wait, what? Dark greens two or three times a day raw if you can, cooked if you can. And I tell you how in the book, I give you lots of ways to eat dark greens. Um, But part of eating healthy is not just giving up stuff. It's making room for the stuff that you need in your body to actually nourish you. And I'm sorry, but nobody needs a croissant. You know, unless, right. I mean, we could, we could go on about that, but I, I, there are a lot of people who would claim that they need a croissant who doesn't love a croissant, but there are, there are nutrients that you need in your body that you are not at all getting because you're so busy stuffing yourself with too much meat, too much fat, too much, whatever, too much sugar, too much uh, fast food. We could go down the list of all the things that you're eating every day that are easy, that are out of a bag, that, you know, come in a box that somebody delivers to your door. But what you need to be putting down your gullet, what you need to have in your body is leafy stuff. And the darker, the better, maybe some red leaves, but dark is good. And, and you could do that in smoothies and you can do it in salads and you can do it in soups and all kinds of ways to do it. But think about what you're eating every day and does it include two or three times dark greens? That's huge. Um, And if you have satisfied yourself with sugar and flour and butter, 
you don't have room or time for dark greens. It's like, yeah, it's okay. You know, next time. Um, that's, that's important stuff right there. Let's talk a little bit about milk and the absence of milk. And so I mentioned my friend and people, the listeners will remember Jimmy um, as now he owns the, he has a, a keto um, bakery restaurant for a to go restaurant in Texas. And he and his wife have decided this isn't secret. He put it on his page. They're going dairy-free, nut-free for a month. Dairy-free, nut-free? What? Dairy-free, nut-free. Why nut-free? I didn't ask that part. I was particularly curious about the dairy part. And his answer was that um, they're, they're, they're experiencing a little bit of inflammation. And so they want to reset their bodies a little bit by eliminating all dairy for a month. And, and already, um, if I've read his message correctly, they're feeling, seeing, observing some differences in how they feel already. So that's typical. Yeah. I, I talk what's a lot the inflammation about that. issue. What's going on with milk in the body causing inflammation? What's happening there? Well, m- most of us didn't evolve to have milk be agreeable to us. Milk is a thing made by a mama cow to give to a 40 pound calf to turn that calf into a 2000 pound bull in a matter of weeks. So when you think about what that product is, the growth hormones, all the rest of the stuff in that product that are designed to, to take you from 40 pounds to 2000 pounds of mean in you know, no time at all. Uh, that's not a thing that is agreeable to most humans. Some of us can tolerate it to some extent, but if you've had kids, you know this, Dan, you're, one of the first things your pediatrician will tell you when you take little Courtney in and her nose is running and she's sneezing, so take her off dairy because it's a highly allergenic substance to most, especially kids. And the the minute you take her off dairy, the nose clears up and she's fine. And another thing that we tend not to want to think about is that the dairy that you're getting now in the grocery store is really not dairy in the sense that so much has happened both to the cow in the process of, of feeding her. She's eating crap. She's crowded in with all these other cows. She's not a happy girl. Um, she, it's, it, she has antibiotics in her system, all the things that, that have to be done to these critters to make them produce more and produce constantly and have their calves taken away. Um, and they're stressed. So then this product gets treated and pasteurized and, you know, put in, boxes and crates and so on and carried. And so by the time it gets to you in the grocery store in its little plastic thing, it's, it's, it's nothing like the milk that you would have if you went out in your yard and milked your cow. Uh, it, it's not the same stuff. And it is um, highly inflammatory for all those reasons. It's got stuff in it that your body doesn't want to accept. So 
uh, and we've we've been fed this misinformation about how healthy milk is and how we won't have calcium if we don't have milk. That's bullshit. <laughs> I think it's okay for me to say that, it, it, that it's perfectly related to the topic. Uh, it actually is uh, bullshit. Um, y- you get lots of calcium from broccoli and lots of other things and, and you'll be fine. Uh, and, and so if you know a cow or, and I, I also will admit to you that if I am going to be offered cheese from some artisanal cheesemaker whose names are on the package and I know where their cows are and you know, cowgirl creamery and point Reyes, Yeah. Okay. I'll have a little bit of that. All right. But that's not the cheese people are eating. That's not the milk that people are drinking. Uh, that's not the chocolate milk that people are demonstrating about. Apparently chocolate milk is yeah. chocolate obscene, milk is obscene. It's obscene. And so, yeah, in a, in very quick order, the things that I tell people are one, just drop sugar right now. Just quit it. Stop. It is addictive. And don't give me that. I'm going to back up. No, no, stop. The same way I would suggest to you that maybe just dialing back on your heroin is not enough. Don't just dial back on your sugar. Quit. Poisoning you and your kids. So there's that. It is a ferocious addiction. It really truly is. is. It is. is. And the... The, the one particular, there's many, but one particular problem with sugar is you, it's not, it's in virtually everything. It's in so many products. Packaged, packaged um, food. Yeah, but it's even in, it's, it's even in packaged stock for people who use, and I have, I've told people in my cookbook and on the show, if you don't have time, the inclination, the kitchen space, whatever the reasons are, and there's lots of reasons to not make your own stock, beef, chicken, fish, whatever you got. It's, it takes time. It's hard to do. It's not hard, but there's, you, you have to be married to the stove while it's on the stove. You can't go anywhere. So if you make soup and you're cooking, you want to use a package container of chicken stock. That's fine. I'd rather you do that. I'd rather you cook something than not cook at all. And we can work toward making all homemade. The sugar in that. But you do have some help by just reading the label religiously. Yeah. Anything in your kitchen, anything that you buy, and make sure your kids are all trained up. Read the label. Uh, I know I, I single mom, three kids, so it was routine for me. My kids all helped me shop, and they knew dang well that they would have to defend anything that went in the grocery cart. They would have to have be able to read that label. And if they couldn't read it, couldn't pronounce it, put it back. You know, it's not food. Um, but that's a habit that I highly recommend for anybody at any age. If you are just grabbing boxes, bags, whatever, and not reading the label, you don't know what you're putting in your body. So please do. Uh, and yes, you can get some stock that's well-made. But you, you have to read the label. You have to know what the heck you're getting. And I don't use chicken stock. I use vegetable stock. But, um, and, and there's a recipe, of course, in the book. 
uh, for uh, how that works. But yeah, so drop sugar like a hot rock. One, two, second item, drop dairy. Just stop. Stop. And you will find all kinds of things clear up in your body, your GERD. You know, there, there are all kinds of issues that you're having that you may be medicating for that just by quitting dairy, really carefully eliminating it from your diet, you will feel better. And it, it doesn't take long. Um, so there's that. Um, I highly recommend that you either quit meat altogether or limit your meat very carefully to what you actually know is truly pasture raised. And that's as opposed to in the safe way with the wrapper and everything, it says pasture raised or or grass fed. That's the new one. Grass fed. Well, to put that label on, all they have to do is, is let that poor cow eat for two days out in the grass and they can say, oh, she's grass fed. No, no, no. You need to know where those animals are coming from and hopefully know who raised them and, and what their practices were. And it's not that you have to go out and follow them around, but you really do need to do a little research on who is selling a legitimately pasture raised animal, whether that's chickens, cows, pigs, whatever. And if they're not, don't buy the product. And you can feel good about it by understanding that when you don't buy that product, you're also not underwriting the pollution that is a result of those factory farmed animals, which I think we all need to think about. Um, If you're buying factory raised, factory farmed eggs, meat, chickens, you are promoting some of the worst pollution that happens in the United States and around the world. Um, It's all that stuff is running down the rivers into the ocean. And if you think it's been stopped, no, it hasn't. It's still going on big time. So stop buying it. Out here in the West, I'm not sure this is actually true, but it seems like it is having access to ranchers seems a little bit easier than it is out in New Jersey, New York, Vermont, Connecticut, New Hampshire. Um, and I'm sure I've never been to Vermont, so maybe they have more farms there than I think. I know that in Northern Michigan. There are farmers markets. There are farmers if, markets. Yeah, there's farmer markets. And so it's, we have a, in, in my town, there's a, there's actually a butcher shop and I've asked them. And so it's not grown in this town, but they know who they're dealing with. It's, oh yeah, this guy, he's from Washington. This guy's from Northern California. This guy's from Idaho. It's like, oh, so right. he knows who he's talking to and he knows who he's talking about. So I have confidence in his products because he has interest in making sure that what he's selling is product that he's proud of. This is a yes. fourth generation business. So there's yes. a lot at stake for him. Yes. And that's part of what I love to talk about with people was this relationship with food. You, you need a relationship with the people who are selling the food that you're buying as well as growing the food that you're buying. 
insofar as you possibly can. I mean, it's part of what makes life interesting, first of all. And any one of us who who goes to Europe and lives any length of time in, in Italy or in France, your grocers, the people who grow the food are a big part of your life. You shop every day. Everything is fresh. And it's all about your fishmonger or your your meat guy or your your vegetable people. You know, that's that's important to you. In the United States, we became so accustomed starting in the 50s to all this just being supermarket. Like, you know, there were people. Everything all the time. So Alan complains about that, about. You should only have asparagus in May. You shouldn't get asparagus in October. Right. Doesn't make sense. Right. But here we are getting apples in in apples in May and not in the fall, and oranges in August. That's that's, that's all screwed up. Everything's backwards. But um, but that's that's I'm not sure it's a symptom, but it's certainly part of a gigantic problem that. A problem, I think, is the wrong word because it just says it's 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 a statement of a thing without offering a solution, and they don't think there's a, an easy solution to be had. Um, I I think there is there's so much wonderful in the challenge that we need to think about, and just the idea that your food isn't just food, your food is connection. It's connection to the earth. It's connection to your family and friends. It's connection to your community. And so food, our food ways, is a great way to create the community that you want. And it's a thing you can do right now in your kitchen, in your living room, on your front porch. You know, you can do it in pots. You can do it in, rip out your grass, grow something. It's, I think a lot of us are feeling a little kind of helpless about the state of the world or even the state of our community. And one of the ways that you can help yourself, your kids, your neighbors right now is eat better, eat more thoughtfully. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't need 300 things to eat. You need, I don't know. 20 things to eat, right? 50 things maybe to eat. it, It doesn't take a huge variety of foods. If you have a few spices, if you, and of course now, brilliant, any of us can go online and buy something from Thrive Market and these other places that have grown up. So if you really want some good curry, you know, you can, you can, and you can't find it down the street. And if you don't live in a, a city where that's available, you can order it. And, you know, just a few spices become familiar with a few new flavors, new fragrances, maybe that you're not familiar with, but also pay homage to and enjoy your traditional flavors and fragrances, whatever those are, learn how to make them. It's not hard. Uh, you know, in California, we have the benefit of having the, and we've talked a couple of times about living in France, the one food that I didn't meet anyone in Paris who didn't go, you know what I really miss? What I really miss about the United States is Mexican food. Cause you couldn't get it in Paris. 
And of course, we've grown up in California with this fabulous Mexican food. You know, it's, it's the best. It's great. And right here in my little community, I mean, I live in a very small town, Pescadero on the coast of California, but we have a taqueria that is talked about in a lot of places and written up. It's in a gas station. There's no sign. <laughs> and you, you, if you drove to town looking for it, you couldn't find it, but we know where it is. And it is, it's fresh seafood in these fabulous burritos and, and tacos, um, along with some other traditional things. It's delicious, fresh food made with love, made beautifully. And the locals are all lined up every day at lunch to get their, their um, burrito camarón. Um, and, you know, that's simple food. It's not complicated at all. It's simple. And they also know that uh, we get ours with no rice. <laughs> so um, back to the diabetic idea and the reason that my book says Brownies for Breakfast, a cookbook for diabetics, it's me, and the people who love them because we should all be able to sit down and eat together. I want that. I want that for you. You want that. I do want that. And, you know, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking that maybe it's been a slow thing and I'm not, I don't think anybody planned this, but it just sort of seems to have happened that where it's, it's very father's knows best where dad comes home from work. Everyone at six o'clock sits down at the dinner table has this is what's for dinner, so this is what we're going to eat. And then it's done, and the dishes are done. They go do whatever you do with the paper, watch TV, or whatever happens, homework. Where now, um, school athletics, I, I, want the, I want the kids doing stuff, but that sure. means they're out of the house a little bit, or they're home later, or they're doing swimming practice or play practice. I think those things are valuable things to do. I think that's important for for the brain and for lots of other things to happen, but it does present the challenge. And you know, I door dash. I'm going to tell you now, because I'm door dashing, I'm buying stuff from someplace else. I don't see what people are cooking at home, but the, <laughs> I bet there is a few select small private one store only establishments that participate and when, when I walk in, one of them is Mexican, interestingly, it's like, oh man, it smells great. I'm like, oh, but I want to come back and eat here. But everything else is Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, and then some of uh, the, the sit down Denny's style things. It's just, it's the same old thing. Yeah, it smells good in the car, but I don't want to eat it. But there's a change in what culture is. Culture is now food comes out of a bag. Comes out of a packet, comes out of the little box, it comes out and of a chef. I box. think, Dan, that you parents are, you've thrown something out of the Conestoga wagon that you shouldn't have. In other words, what is it that that kid is doing at baseball or Mandarin or um, bassoon lessons or whatever it is that is more important than food? 
than that is more important than the culture of table. And here you are a chef and you have so much to teach your children. And, and I, I would propose that when your kids and I had three and uh, they're all in their forties now, no felons, happy to say, um, and they can all cook and they all went to college able and, and my youngest was 16 when she went to college away um, and they all went away between the ages of 16 and 18. They were off to different countries and different coast. They could wash clothes. They could cook. They could set a table. They could sit at a table and have a conversation. They could use utensils. And I'm saying that because what I'm hearing from young families is that there are a lot of kids out there now that have never eaten with utensils, who have eaten everything out of a bag their whole little lives, who do not know how to have a conversation or start one with an adult at a table. Because everybody at the table, if they get to the table, they've got electronics in their faces and they're not talking. So I am not willing to say that eating with utensils and talking at the table and cooking and washing clothes are not needed anymore, are not important anymore. In fact, I'm willing to stand up, but again, I'm a grandma, so I get to do this. I think being able to hold a conversation with an adult at a table while you are using utensils and passing food, perhaps, is a thing that will get you through life way better than playing the bassoon. That's just a guess. It's probably a good guess. Unless you want to be a serenaded by a bassoon, then you're really in trouble. Well, okay. And I went through that whole thing with my kids <clears throat> where I know we had a, we had a meeting one night at the table and I said, look, you're all in soccer, you know, and I'm driving each one of you to different soccer games and I'm snack mom for three different soccer teams. This was while having a, I was the sole provider for these kids. So I had big time responsibilities at work, which were not a nine to five thing. They were like five in the morning until, you know, whenever, a lot of the time. And so I sat them down and I said, how much do you love soccer? And they looked at each other and they looked at me and they went, we don't, we don't particularly love soccer. Okay, good. Done. We're not doing soccer. And I, I asked them to choose if they wanted to research, find another thing that we thought we could manage better in the family. And guess what happened? Can you guess? You want to guess? They all found one thing that they thought was better and they all agreed on it. Yeah. Guess what it was? Well, I have no idea. No, you don't. Fencing. Ha! That's fun. And we lived in San Jose at the time, and it turned out there was a SAL, a fencing school, two miles away in downtown San Jose. Who knew? And she was brilliant. Still love her. Connie Yu was her name. And this wonderful, and it turned out to be this great adventure. My youngest went on. She was like 15th in the country. She started a fencing team at her college, but it was one location, one sport, Three kids, bye-bye. 
and it was two miles from home. They could have walked home Nice in an emergency. So I'm just suggesting that where there is a will, there is a way. And y'all moms and dads are spending way too much time in the car, way too much time driving their little butts all over everywhere, not thinking deeply about where you want to go with this, what you want that 18 or 17 year old to really be prepared to leave home with. Um, Are they using utensils? I hope I really want them to. Yes, yes, they are. They know how to use them. They know how to cut food. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be surprised yet. Somehow I find that I am, that there are, there are kids who don't know how to do that. And I, that, that, I don't know what that's, I, I'll process that for a little bit. Well, here's another little small example. In my house, we've always had cloth napkins on the table. That's part of the way we eat. And I actually, part of my little personal rituals are keeping the napkins clean and folded and fresh. And, you know, to me, that's part of the ritual of food. It's part of what feels good and smells good about eating together. Uh, in France, one of the little rituals is that you have a different knot for each napkin. So you don't have to have a fresh napkin every time you sit down. You take your napkin back and use it. But whatever the ritual is, and I've had people come to my table and go, cloth napkins? I didn't know that was weird. <laughs> right? I, th- I think it is, but I have to tell you, we also have cloth napkins. And, and See? It, it- it, it was a twofold decision. One, it was a lot nicer than the crummy paper napkins, but also well, there's the some nice paper, paper napkins. napkins. Well, yeah, but <laughs> it's you you buy this big sleeve of napkins, and you know automatically it's all going in the bin. Yeah. So, well, so let's go ahead and spend something on we can reuse it again. And we've had the same cloth napkins for years and years and years and years. And now it's kind of like, oh, this is my favorite cloth napkin. I'm going to have this one and. That was never expected, but now it's it's kind of a fun thing. It's a stupid thing to say. Napkins are fun, but I, I, I'm sorry. Sign me up. I mean, I have my mother's napkins, linen. I have my grandmother's linen napkins. I have my nice. great grandmother's linen napkins, wow. and I treasure them. And I and they, there's a feel to them. I actually like ironing them. I know it's a little strange, but it, they're they're very precious to me. And I love putting them on the table for people. They look wonderful when they're all, you know, ready for for folks. I don't use my good linen ones all the time. But I read the other day that among the items that kids no longer want their parents to leave to them, please don't leave me these, are antique linens, old linens. What? I know. And I'm thinking. Send them to me. Yeah, I want them. Um, it's, It's such a wonderful connection to your ancestors, yeah. you know, to your old ones. Um, I, I, I have a hard time imagining my life, which, you know, it could happen. I mean, our house almost burned down last year in one of the big fires. It came within a quarter mile. And wow. in that moment or two, you go, am I walking away forever from these things that were handed down, you know, that are precious 
to me. And I have, oh, yeah. So, yeah, being attached to um, these physical things, these material things has a price. But cloth napkins, linen napkins, please. It's nice. I don't want them gone forever. No. You also, as I found out watching one of your YouTube videos, like to iron your pillowcases. Oh, did I put that on YouTube? You did. So it was the what's in my pantry video. Now, uh, and I knew about the pumpkin because you showed your drawer of lots and lots and lots of cans of pumpkin. I gave that away, didn't I? But one thing in particular that was really interesting, and I didn't know about this. So I want to get some information from you. We've been railing on sugar, and I think that that's fine. It deserves to be railed on. You mentioned something I didn't know. Fermented cane sugar. What is it, and why is that a better choice than than just regular white sugar? It's marketing, and uh, it actually it's a no calorie product. It's a product that doesn't give you a spike in your blood glucose. Mm-hmm. Um, I I it's a little far away, or I can run and get a package and bring it back. Let's do another show about it. Um, it's something I'm experimenting with now and, and exploring, uh, and I want to know more about it too. So it's one of the sweeteners that I'm trying. And I, 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 I try and do experiments with the things that come on the market. And now because there is demonstrably a market for non-sugar sweeteners, that's growing. Um, There are these new things coming out and they are all experimenting with what they call these things. A lot of money has been spent, huge amount of money has been spent on cane sugar being good. You know, natural cane sugar is considered a positive thing. It's not, but it's marketing. So what this product is, I don't know yet how they ferment it. And I thank you for the suggestion. I'm going to do more research that I can uh, produce and we can talk about it again on the air uh, because I want to know too exactly how they're making this. It works for me so far. The flavor of it, the, the reaction in my body works, all of it, but yeah, what is this exactly? Is there a... We need more information. Is there more than one brand name? If someone is also... And this would just be, I'm going to go do my own experiment in my house and see how does it feel on me. And really, that's I don't. That's a much more useful and valuable experiment to that baker than whatever some PhD says. Right. Because if it doesn't make me feel good, it doesn't yeah. really matter what you say. So right. is there a brand name? I don't, I'm not so given a pitch, but is there something people could look for? Cause I'm interested also uh, if it's, if it's a replacement for sugar that doesn't spike insulin. And that's my main concern for the kids is getting as much sugar out of the diet as possible right. in the ways that I can. And even when it's not added sugar, the tortilla with no wetted sugar still is a white grain that's going to turn to sugar. That's a whole other issue. Right. Um, but if I can, if I can eliminate the easiest, the, the easy emissions, I'm going to go for it. So I have monk fruit 
sugar in the garage and the pantry. I said the garage, the garage is in the pantry. Pantry's in the garage. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think stevia has a couple of different names, but I think stevia is one that I've got. Those are the only two I don't names. actually like stevia. The flavor doesn't work for me. And I've heard people complain about monk fruit, and I haven't tried it because people say, "Oh, it's bitter." Well, I, so well, there I, are there are all different. And another thing that the industry is doing now is they're calling it monk fruit, but if you look, if you read the label, which you have to do, you will see that it, the first ingredient is erythritol. And erythritol is actually a good sweetener, but it can create a cooling effect in baked goods. So if you are baking a highly spiced or flavored thing, for example, chocolate, it's not a problem. If you're making a vanilla kind of flavor, you might get that cooling on your tongue effect from erythritol that you might not like. Are you cooling effect? Do you mean similar to what a menthol would do? Except that take the menthol, menthol is a taste, you know, menthol has a flavor. That, that, that effect. Yeah, the effect is that you, it's almost as if you, you ate a flavorless mint. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I understand that. That makes, I mean, I don't know if it makes sense, but I understand now I understand the words and I can get that part. Um, All right. Let me ask you one more question. Also from the what's in my pantry video nutritional yeast. Now I read a little bit about that and I bought some, but I have no idea what to do with it. Oh, I eat tons of it every day. Remember when we were kids, we ate wheat germ. It came Um, in the red, red jar. Right. So my dad would put that on. Nutritional yeast. Just think anywhere where you would put Parmesan cheese, put nutritional yeast. Okay. So top an egg dish, top a bean dish, Dish, put it in pasta um, anywhere. And I can't think of any exceptions right now. There are probably some, but just about anywhere that you would use a Parmesan cheese, you get a salty Parmesan cheese flavor from it. It gets crunchy. It melts a little bit. I use it on egg or egg white dishes all the time. One of my favorite breakfasts is um, chopped arugula with egg whites on top of it with, if I've got some, uh, there's a, there are a couple of cheese like products in a grated cheese kind of thing that you can put on top of it that will melt a little bit and then dump a bunch of uh, yeast flakes on it and throw it in the microwave. So it makes a nice crust on top of this little egg dish. Uh, It's got a great flavor, terrific for you. And people always ask folks like me who don't eat meat, How do you get your protein? Well, that's a good way because two tablespoons of that nutritional yeast have eight grams of protein. So very easy to throw a bunch of protein on different things that way. So then 92% of that nutritional yeast is carb. Is what? Carbohydrate. Because it's not fat. If it's a macronutrient, we have it's, protein. It's carb, carb yeah, but right. there's carbs and then there's carbs. I understand that. I agree with you. The broccoli isn't the same as the cup of rice. No. Yeah. No. And if you're getting a big flavor bang and if you're getting protein, too. Fla- flavors, flavor is critical, and especially. Yeah. So I'm just, 
I, I didn't. So if you were making your your breakfast brownie, the cup of nut butter and the eggs, and could you? Is there a ratio? Let's say you have a cup of nut butter. How much nutritional yeast could you add to that cup of nut butter for the recipe of brownies? And well, I would get a good product. First of all, because I don't want a Parmesan cheese taste in my brownies. One, okay. two, those brownies are packed with protein because I put a whole jar of nut butter in a pan of brownies. Right. And I'm putting eggs in my brownies, like three eggs. So when I think of ways to use nutritional yeast, thinking about, instead of thinking about how I put this thing in something, think about substitute or enhance Parmesan cheese dishes. So if I'm doing a pasta dish, I'm doing macaroni and cheese, and I want, it looks like it has even out of the bag with the carton, it looks like it might have a bit of a crunch to it, Uh a bit of a texture. So because crunch is Here's an example. Grilled veggies, so simple, right? Just chop them up, throw them in the in a hot oven, um, and and bake them down, or put it even hotter and and broil them down a little bit, and then throw that that um, nutritional yeast flakes on top. Delicious, adds a little crunch. It looks like something interesting is going on. It has that little bit of salty Parmesan flavor, and it's another way to make your veggies taste great. Uh, if you were making, let's say, because you use eggs, let's say you were making a, uh, you're trying to plan for mornings and you want to have a good breakfast, but you're one of those persons who doesn't get up in enough time. So you make 12 egg arugula, quote unquote, muffins. Mm-hmm. So you can microwave one and have a decent breakfast instead of having a piece of toast to get out the door. Yeah. Could you put that nutritional yeast in kind of like maybe some Absolutely. Um, Sprinkle it on flakes, top. make it like a streusel? You could put it in or on. So you could use coconut fat and nutritional yeast and maybe some coconut or some pieces of oat to get the nice ratio and then put it on there because I even though that's not a muffin and Parmesan cheese with egg tastes good. It's um, a mini quiche. I, yeah. I, I like, I like streusel on my muffins. I like, I like crunch because they're just so bleh, mm-hmm. unless you have nuts inside of it, they're soft. I want, I want contrast. I like contrast. Yeah, it makes a good crunch. You will deal. like the crunch. All right. Well, now I have a way to use this. Now this is a good idea. Do you ever make cassoulet? <laughs> Huh. Ever yes, but I don't make it here because I because the steps to go through to make the Toulouse sausage I would want to make my own. I'm not gonna. I could. Okay, I would Dan, buy it. Dan. Yes. There is a recipe in the book. Of course, there is. Yes, for the the French grandma way. Like boom, it's it's not hard. It's um, vastly simplified. It's not like those towns in France that have cassoulet competitions. And so it's all about where your duck sausage came from or whatever. It's how to make it vegan uh, and absolutely delicious. And you top it with nutritional yeast flakes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I call it French as hell cassoulet. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. So what are you using for the duck? For the duck confit. 
I just, I use vegan sausage that I buy at Trader Joe's or New Leaf. Some I like, some I don't like, but I found some that has some good sausagey kind of flavor. And, and I use lentils uh, for my bean, uh, a dark lentil. The little French green ones? You can use the green ones. I love those things. I like the black beluga ones too. Oh, right. Um, And the, the deal is use what you got. What have you got in the drawer? What have you got in the pantry? Uh, and lentils are such great food, high protein, you know, so much good nutrition going on. They're cheap. They store well. They are cheap. And, and they make a brilliant meal that you can just keep eating all week if you want to. I love those. I love to be able to pull something out of the fridge, right? And nuker, and there it is. It's done. Um, so cassoulet is a fancy word for a simple bean dish, really. And you make it with the genius soup, which is also a recipe in the book, which is called genius soup. Be- because guess why? Can you guess? It's easy. It's grandma it's easy. Genius. It's genius. It's easy. And you can make all kinds of other stuff from it. And, and so the way you're making your cassoulet is you're, sauteing a little bit of this vegan sausage maybe if you've got it and then you dump the the um lentils in the genius soup that you've already made because you need to do that and and you put it in the pot slow oven long time and uh you top it with nutritional yeast flakes so you've got your lovely little crust and you let it kind of get burnt a little crisp around the edge the way they do in France. It's great. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. like it would also probably work also with split peas. Cause I, I kind of admit I like split peas. Uh, that's you. And let's see how many other people. Mm. Six. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, one last question on sugar. Then I'm going to move into something else. And I just saw the article yesterday. Uh, I don't know how old the article actually is. A connection between sugar and Alzheimer's. I knew you were going to say that. You did. Uh. <laughs> what do you, so is this a new idea? Is this new research? Are you the, aware there's of this? a lot of research that's come out recently. Uh, and they are now calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. Really? Yeah. Um, it is, and that's why I'm out here screaming about sugar, because people don't understand that when they elevate their blood sugar and when they bombard their body with this substance, it is affecting their brain cells in a very serious way. And we don't have time here again for all the islets and everything, but you can look it up. You can find it everywhere. Lots of people talking about it now, experts. Um, but it seems like Alzheimer's and dementia are the, the boogeyman now everyone's worried about. We, none of us want to lose our brains, right? We don't want to lose our ability to reason. We don't want to become um, not ourselves and a burden on people. And many of us have experienced up close and personal what that dementia, what Alzheimer's is um, and what it does to our families. And yes, 
they are the two things that that they're claiming they the experts are claiming are responsible to a great degree one is lack of sleep poor sleep habits because of the thing we were talking about earlier when you don't leave time for your brain to do this autophagy that it needs to do to cleanse these cells and prepare them for the next day you're losing something all the time so that's a thing sleep and then the next thing is when you're bombarding your body with sugar all the time your body can't handle it and it tries to handle it and it tries to compensate for it but it's stressing your liver it's stressing your pancreas it's stressing your brain well it also stresses your gut and we know there's a gut we know there's a gut brain exactly access. right it's wrecking your biome your gut biome and is, there 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 is a new appreciation now for this gut brain connection yes, for how much of our intelligence actually comes from our gut and when you ruin your gut you have ruined your health um so uh, yeah there's there it seems that for what we i don't know anything but i know what i'm reading that there is through through making better food choices eating more probiotic foods that the damage done in the gut to the gut can be at least mitigated and possibly reversed. Yes. Um, you are an example, my friend. Jimmy is an example. You have both taken completely different paths, but you have both also undone a serious disease. Jimmy had more than a few, and he, through his keto diet, has lost over 200 pounds and, and wow. got rid of a host of ailments that his body had. They're gone. Yeah. So um, I'm more interested that Jimmy's well, and I'm pleased for him and whatever path he got there, being healthy is better than picky about the past. As far as you know, from whatever it is the researchers have learned, is Alzheimer's, once that, I don't even know what it means, but I'm going to say something that might be wrong, technically wrong, once the brain cell damage is done, can... A change in diet undo that damage. I'm seeing research that says yes. Oh, that's um, hopeful. That is very hopeful. Uh, and of course, the sooner you start, right? Don't wait till you're 75. Well, my, <clears throat> my dad's mom died. Well, I'm not sure Alzheimer's was the cause of death, but when she died, she died in a pretty pretty advanced state of Alzheimer's and um, he was, he went back to his hometown of Detroit to stay with her for, for as long as, well, I don't remember how long it was, but um, listening to him and reading his letters about watching this happen was, was a painful thing. And I, it's and heartbreaking. I know it's heartbreaking. Uh, he has passed too, but I know that it's, it, it was hard. It was really hard on him and uh, it's hard on everybody. It's just, it's, it's an awful thing. And so. Yeah. And, and um, we are finding more and more with diabetes and other chronic diseases and Alzheimer's as well, 
that what we had just shoved over in the um, hereditary basket isn't necessarily so. You may inherit genes that give you something of a proclivity for these chronic diseases, but you don't necessarily need to succumb to these diseases if you do what you need to do to prevent them. Right. So we're back to food as medicine. Yeah. And movement, exercise. Well, and I'm going to say food as preventative medicine. Yes. Way. So both preventive and, you know, so people can get it and they have a smart audience. All right. I think there's still more here to pursue, but I want to move on to the last part of the show because I think we'll be here for hours and hours. And <laughs> We could keep doing this, couldn't well, we? Well, I, I think the listeners are like, my God, give it a break already. So let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey, everyone. Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. This is a little short answer part of the show that's a lot of fun for me. I mean, I hope it's fun for you too. Right. Um, of the five flavors, bitter, sweet, sour, salty, and umami, which one's your favorite? Um, I will have to confess, I, I think I'm probably a sweet girl. What's your favorite food? Oh, God. My favorite food. Um, a Blenheim apricot. What's your least favorite food? Liver. What's your favorite sound? Sound? Mm-hmm. Um, my new grandson's voice. What sound do you hate? Loud. What gets you excited? So many things. Um, Beauty. What turned you off? Ugly. What's your favorite food indulgence? (laughs) Oh, my. Indulgence. Um... This may not sound like a big indulgence for some people. Ate it yesterday, just loved every bite. Frozen ripe Bing cherries in whole yogurt with um, monk fruit sweetener. I, I can see part of that. The frozen cherry part I get. My wife likes perfectly frozen green grapes. I'm not a great fan, but... But for cherry, her, it's a childhood thing. So. Cherries. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, how can people follow you? <laughs> how can they follow me? Uh, buy the book. Um, it, it, I'm Lynn at lynnbowman.com. So the website is lynnbowman.com. Spell it with an E. L-Y-N-N-E-B-O-W-M-A-N.com. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all of 
places as Lynn Parmature Bowman. It's my author name. So that's L-A-N-N-E-P-A-R-M-I-T-E-R. Um, you can find probably this podcast and others on Listen Notes and the other places where they list podcasts. If you search my name, Lynn Parmeter Bowman. Um, I'm not great about keeping my website up, but I try. And if you sign up on the website, there's a place right on the front page where you can sign up on Lynn's list. I will send you some of my best discoveries, new recipes, stuff like that. Um, so I, I hope you'll go on and sign up on Lynn's list and be patient with me. Cause I, I will not send you something every week. <laughs> I will send you something <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> I want it to be good. I don't want it to, to crowd your inbox. So that's yeah. how you well, find me. Very good. And I will put those links and also a uh, link to the Amazon version of the book on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 180. Thank you. And I, I want to add that if you have a bookseller, an independent bookseller that you like, please go in and ask them for brownies for breakfast. They can get it from their wholesaler, but also do a little shtick for me when they say, oh, no, I don't have that. Go, you don't? God, it's blowing up. It's fabulous. you got to get it. Um, and it's it, repeat the title, brownies for for them and insist that they order it for you from their wholesaler, who's probably um, Ingram Spark. Thank you for the oh, so. commercial. And it's, yeah. Well, Lynn, it has been a pleasure. And I, when you figure out more about the fermented sugar, let me know because I want to learn more about it too. And I'm going to see if I can. We will move. correspond and maybe we'll come back on the air and talk about it because it's, it's, it's all new stuff. It's interesting. To me, to you. Well, no, interesting is good. And especially if there's ways to improve health, then it's doubly interesting. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Today. Thank you, Dan. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put Lynn's website link on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 180, as well as the link for her cookbook, Brownies for Breakfast. I'm going to add a link to the Mark McAfee Raw Milk episode. I agree that the pasteurized milk product sold in stores is a useless product. I also agree with Lynn that local matters. Raw milk and raw cheese, due to what it is, must be local to you. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being here. Here's a shout out to Luke. Hi Luke! For supporting me through Patreon. Find the link for the Patreon and other ways to support me on culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Please share this episode on your social media and rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. And I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.